Well, from time to time, when I was a kid, I was known for having a big mouth. You couldn't imagine that from a pastor. And from time to time, my dad would wisely discipline me for having that big mouth. And especially as a teenager, it seemed my brother and I would get into a lot of trouble with our mom because we had this way of being disrespectful to mom, had this way of sneering at her requests or criticizing or getting sarcastic and just not treating her with the same level of respect as we did dad, not treating her with the respect that she deserved. And one day, about four or five in the afternoon, I got really nasty and then I proceeded to have my snack as my mom was kind of grieving my attitude and then about 5.30 rolls around and my dad comes home and I'm sitting down at the dining room table reading the newspaper, still eating. And my mom conveys to my father what I had done that day and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it had to do with that big mouth. And my dad proceeds to listen to my mother and then come over to the dining room table and pick me up by my bicep and throw me against the glass sliding door next to our dining room table. And as he threw me against that glass sliding door, he took his other index finger and pointed at right between my eyes and said, don't you ever bleep and disrespect your mother again. Like a snarl on his face. And I proceeded to wilt before his eyes and cry, and my arm really hurt. And then I went up, tail between my legs, crying in shame, up to my bedroom in fear. And he never had to do that again. It worked, specifically because he never did it before. And it was serious, and I recognized in that moment the severity of the sin because it was matched by the intensity of the response. And it wasn't abuse. He didn't hit me. He never would. But there was an intensity to his response because the trespass was so serious. The Bible makes a similar comparison to how God would lovingly discipline his own children. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see up on the screen. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, just as I respected my dad and what he did later on, maybe not in the moment, but later on. Shall we not much more then be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, does it not? All discipline seems really painful rather than pleasant in the moment that we are disciplined. And yet it goes on to say, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by that discipline. The point of all this is, both in terms of my illustration and in terms of the father's loving discipline of his sons and daughters within the family of God, is that discipline always begins in the home. Doesn't it? You don't discipline someone else's kids. 
you discipline your own kids. And so also, with our Father in heaven, discipline always begins at home. As we pick up the story of Daniel this morning, we see that God's people had been disciplined, and God repeatedly had warned the leaders and the followers, the people of Jerusalem, to repent and to return to him, to turn from their wickedness and follow him once again. And we talked about this some last week as we were setting the stage for thriving in Babylon and the way that Israel had descended into such wickedness. And in essence, they had fallen in two big areas. The first one was this. The people of Israel, over the course of a long, long time, centuries in fact, had begun to practice a form of syncretism, of mixing together faith. They were cafeteria Christians, if you will. Syncretism just means to mix together different faiths. And they were like people today who would call themselves Christian Buddhists. Or people today who would call themselves Jewish Hindus. Have you ever met people like that? You will. And they were these folks in ancient Judaism who would take a little bit of this from Yahweh, a bit of his teachings from the Ten Commandments, and then also a bit of the teachings and the worship of the god Ashtoreth, or the false god Baal. And they would mix together a bit of this and mix together a bit of that, and they would create a God in their own image. That was the first issue. They failed the very first commandment to worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. They mixed together and created this own God of their own image instead. That was the first thing that God had against His people that led them to this point that God is about to discipline His people, and He sends them into exile. The second issue comes from their failure to act with justice and mercy and humility. They had failed over the course of hundreds of years to follow thousands of commandments in the Old Testament to care for the oppressed, to care for the fatherless, to care for widows, to care for orphans, to care for immigrants, to look out for those who are on the margins of society who would have no one else to look out for them. The God's people would be a different kind of people in this. They cared for those who are on the margins. Perhaps this is most beautifully and most elegantly expressed in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which I know many of you are familiar with. Let's read this out loud together. It says, join me please, He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to and to with your God. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This beautiful summary statement of how God expected his people to act differently than their Babylonian neighbors, their Assyrian neighbors, their Canaanite neighbors, because they were people of justice and people of mercy and people of great humility. And after roughly 300 years of this duplicity, going back and forth, instead being people of arrogance and people of um, pride and people of great monetary possession without generosity, and they had this ebb and flow back and forth, mixing together different faiths and, and not practicing mercy and not sharing their possessions well with the poor. And it's been 300 years of this, starting with King Solomon and bringing them all the way to the present time where King Jehoiakim is now reigning in the land of Judah. And after 300 years, God has had enough, and so he picks up his children by the bicep and throws them against that glass sliding door. 
It's time for a spanking after 300 years. If you look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, here's how it went down. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged Jerusalem. And the Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. If I were you, I'd underline those three words, the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim and the land of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But God's people are removed from their land, from their temple, and they're placed in Babylon, where they now live under the oppressive rule of a malicious king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And we sometimes miss this perspective of time that I've just noted when we read of the Lord's discipline and we read through the whole of the Bible. We sometimes forget that the Bible was written across 1,500 years. And we'll go from book to book in the Bible and we lose the perspective of time that that was generation after generation after generation. And it's not that God is just kind of flying off the handle here. It's not that he's having a temper tantrum with his people and that he uses Nebuchadnezzar to discipline them. It's that, that for... For 300 years, they've gone back and forth, committing apostasy and then coming back to him, uh, worshiping him in a half-hearted sense and then coming back to him. And this back and forth thing such that we're left with the question, not, God, why are you so angry? Not, God, why did you give such discipline to your people? But, but God, why did it take so long? God, why were you so patient with your people here? Now, the lesson for them is the same lesson that God would have us learn today, that he expects us to lean into him on a day-in and day-out basis to worship him alone and not another, not to, to worship money, not to worship sex, not to worship things, not to worship power, not to practice a cafeteria Christianity, none of that, but to worship him alone and then to become people of humility, justice, mercy, compassion, a people that are fragrant and totally different from those around us. That others would encounter the mercy and the grace and the truth of Christ as they encounter us. And of course we will fail. We'll fail in this. But God graciously forgives and he grants us new opportunities and new starts and we look at the cross and he forgives and then we increasingly become once again as we live out of the gospel of Christ, people of of hope, people of humility, people of mercy and of justice to those around us. Now, another one of the prophets, a man named Habakkuk, isn't so much shocked that God is bringing his tough love to the people of Israel. He's not shocked by that because he sees that his people Israel have been uh, living this duplicitous lifestyle for, for all this time. And Habakkuk is writing just before the time of Daniel. But what he is shocked by is that God would use a wicked ruler like King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or the king of Assyria just before that for the northern kingdom. What he's shocked is he would use even a wicked ruler like that to bring about God's justice in the world toward his people. This is what he says in Habakkuk 1.13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. So Habakkuk again is saying, I'm not surprised that you would discipline your people. We've done wrong. But you're going to use someone as nasty as Nebuchadnezzar to do so? 
to swallow up those who are much more righteous than Nebuchadnezzar? And what God goes on to say in the book of Habakkuk, and he goes on to say in so many other prophets is, don't worry about those people out there. Don't worry about what happens amongst them outside these walls. Worry about your own people. Worry about your own spiritual family. Because I will take care of them, God tells Habakkuk. And he goes on to take care of them. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Daniel, that he takes care of Nebuchadnezzar and the oppressive and ugly Babylonians as well. But the point here is your focus should always be on home team. Because discipline happens inside the camp. We don't discipline someone else's kids. God begins by disciplining us, his own children. Discipline begins, be it in 600 B.C. or 2016 A.D. It begins in the home. So again, Daniel chapter 1. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Who did it? Who was responsible for this? Anyone? The Lord gave. Let's all say that together. The Lord gave. The Lord was responsible for this. And so the lesson that we learn from Daniel 1, and we'll see here in Daniel 2, is God is in charge of those who are in charge. God is in charge of those in charge. Turn over to Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to give a quick retelling of this whole long chapter. I would encourage you to read Daniel 2 this week. But we'll see here that God is is sovereign over empires and over rulers, over kings, And as you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the entrances here or the information table. We'd love for you to take one home as our gift to you. We read from the Bible each and every week, but most of these verses today will be up on the screen. First, here's the setting. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he gathers together his very best enchanters and magicians, and together he tells them to interpret the dream that he had. But if you know this story, there's a little bit of a catch. He tells the magicians and the enchanters to interpret the dream, but he doesn't tell them the dream. He says, not only do you need to give me the interpretation, but also you need to tell me what the dream was. See, Nebuchadnezzar saw that they were kind of like tarot card readers, They may have been, quote-unquote, magicians. They may have been dabbling in the occult, but they were also really just masters of simple deception. And so he says to them, you need not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but also the dream itself, and if you don't do it correctly, I'll put you all to death. Good luck. And so Daniel goes to work. And Daniel's been trained in the same school, and he doesn't rely on the same kind of wisdom as they have, He relies on God, and he seeks God's revelation. He seeks God's help with understanding what this dream was and what the interpretation might be, and the way he does that, the way he goes to work is by falling on his knees. We see in this chapter as it goes on that he falls on his knees, and he beseeches the Lord in prayer, and he he brings his closest friends near him and asks his closest friends to pray with him, and as they're praying, God gives this wonderful revelation to 
Daniel that he learns not only what the dream was, but also what the interpretation is. And you see he affirms God's sovereignty even after he blesses the wisdom and the kindness and the grace of God in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What's meant there is God is sovereign. It's that God has established these kings, established these empires, and he will take them down. And he's sovereign over the physical laws of the universe. He changes the times and the seasons. He sets the orbit of the earth around the sun. He sets the orbit of the moon around the earth. He's responsible for the physical laws of existence, and he establishes the, these kings. He's, he's sovereign. Then it goes on to say, if you continue on to verse 36, he uh, tells the king what, what the dream is. And then in verse 36, he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of, of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. Where did he get the kingdom? Where did he get the power? Where did he get the might? He got it from God. God established him. Okay, God's given you all of this. And into whose hand he was given. He has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And uh, if you, if you want to see the whole of the imagery that's presented here, again, read Daniel chapter 2 this week. I'd encourage you to also read Daniel chapter 7. I'll preach on both of them as it relates to uh, the various kingdoms that come before the kingdom of Christ, we'll preach on both of them here in several weeks because they are repeated kingdoms here in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. But the point, at least for this morning, is this. God has established these different kingdoms. They're all human-centered kingdoms, man-centered kingdoms. And then at the end, he's going to establish a God-honoring, God-centered kingdom that is characterized by humility and justice, and peace, and ultimately good will triumph over evil, and Christ will reign forever and ever. Can I get an amen? Okay, so that says verse 44, and then in the last days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the kingdom of God, with Christ at the center, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forevermore. That kingdom has come. That kingdom is here amongst us. It is at hand to some degree with us even today. We have access to that kingdom as we live in the living God, Christ Jesus himself. We gain his hope. We gain his joy we gain his ultimate victory. Now, ultimately, that victory will be realized when Christ returns again the second time. This kingdom is an already but not yet totally here kingdom. It's already here when Christ came the first time. It'll be realized completely when he comes again in glory. So Daniel gives this full dream and revelation and interpretation to the king, and the king responds with some kind of worship of the only God, it's an amazing turn of events for Nebuchadnezzar who worshiped Bel and Ashtoreth and all these false gods. And Daniel responds to it all by using his newfound leverage 
to care for his friends, asking that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego would be elevated to a place of authority within the Babylonian kingdom. And then he responds to it surprisingly by even caring for those false enchanters and magicians. Nebuchadnezzar was going to have all of them killed, but if you look back in verse 24, Daniel says, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I will give the king the interpretation. And then he goes forward to do that. Again, it's a stunning picture of a countercultural man who is wise and he is prayerful. He is humble and he's constantly serving others. He looks out for his friends. He worships his God even when it would cost him a great deal as we looked at in chapter 1. And here, as a forerunner of Christ, he cares for his enemies. I mean, these are people that are dabbling in the occult. More than dabbling, they're majoring in the occult. They're worshiping all kinds of false gods. And he protects even them. He's a forerunner of Christ's love for enemies as well. So much more could be said about Daniel, and we'll look into his character more in the coming weeks. But the point here of chapter 2 is this. God is in charge of those who are in charge. And that really helps me in times like this. Because I don't know about you, it kind of feels sometimes, like right now, God's not really in charge. Anyone else? I, I mean, you, you read the news. You look at what's going on in our world. You look at what's going on in our country. And you start to wonder, God, are you really in charge? And it's at these times that we have to pause and remind ourselves of history. We have to remind ourselves of the way God sovereignly brought about good from the most awful messes. We have to remind ourselves of God's specialty, which has taken a big pile of manure right in the center of your life and turned it into the most beautiful fertilizer in which He can bring about the most glorious stories. And you've seen that. You've experienced that. Daniel experienced that. He was in that pile of manure for 66 years. And God brought about about through his ministry and through his sovereignty this glorious purpose to bring people back into their promised land in Israel. And once back in their promised land to reestablish the temple and reestablish a proper worship and reestablish a proper sense of justice and mercy and humility. He did the same thing with Moses, of course, during the exile in Egypt. He did the same thing with Joseph in Egypt. He's done the same thing in so many of your lives. He's done the same thing in my life. I can look at so many times in my own life when by all earthly measures my life was an absolute mess. And yet God came in and he was able to bring out of that mess something that was beautiful. We see that on the cross. The cross of Good Friday was the ugliest day in all of history in which the only righteous, in which the only innocent man actually was victimized brutally. But then that preceded the greatest day in all of history, the Sunday in which he rose again to vindicate our faith and to vindicate God's ultimate plan. All of this reminds us that God will accomplish his sovereign purposes in the end. He has the wisdom to know how to do so. Do you believe that today, my friends? 
He has the wisdom to accomplish his sovereign purposes even when it seems like things are not going the way they should. Now, one final point needs to be noted on this. God's sovereignty always includes human responsibility. It always includes human responsibility. And there are these two wings of truth, that God is in charge, and yet at the same time we are responsible to honor him and to do right, and he's given us a free will that is always underneath his sovereignty. And so God charges Nebuchadnezzar with this kingdom, but if you read forward into chapter 4 of Daniel, he also charges Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to turn from his wickedness, otherwise the kingdom will quickly be taken from his hand. And this is what he does with earthly leaders today. He might give a kingdom, but he calls them to repentance, to fall on their knees and to follow him and to do what is right. So we hold on to these two wings of truth at the same time, that he is in charge, and yet at the same time he gives us free will and he expects us to act in a way that is honoring to him. He expects rulers to govern in a way that is honoring to human dignity. Now, how do we respond personally to all of this? These two major big ideas that I've already communicated, that God is in charge of those who are in charge, and discipline always begins in the home. How do we respond to those? Here's the first way. I think we respond by looking into the mirror and confessing our stuff. Not by looking outside of the world. We respond by looking into the mirror and confessing our stuff within the family of God. Because discipline always begins here. Here's the difference, Bob, between Christians and non-Christians. It's, it's not that the, the Christians have it all together and they act perfectly, and non-Christians don't. None of us have it all together, and all of us act imperfectly. But Christians are different in this. We repent. We confess. We admit our failures. When we, when we blow it, we say to each other, I'm so sorry for the way that I've blown it. I'm so sorry for my failures. I'm so sorry for my mistakes. You see, most people, what they do is when they make a mistake, they look outside for someone else to blame. Right? That's the way we're trained to do things, to allow someone else to take responsibility for our own mistakes or to uh, shift the blame, if you will. But we Christians do it differently. The way we live as Christians is we recognize our stuff by looking in the mirror and confessing the ways that we have failed. And nothing gets Christians into more hot water today than the hypocrisy of acting like we have it all together and not admitting when we're wrong. The hypocrisy of constantly looking at the speck in other people's eyes rather than examining the plank in our own. If discipline starts at home, we are wise, I am wise, to keep very short accounts with God, to keep very short accounts with you, to go before God on a regular basis, to look in the mirror and say, here I am, I have failed, I have done wrong, now I look up to the cross, would you please forgive me? Now I live before an audience of one, would you grant me a newfound capacity to live with humility and justice, and mercy toward others. Second response is to pray for our leaders in positions of authority. God's providence over rulers reminds us to pray for them, to thank God for their service, 
even when we disagree with some of their policies. To pray for their families. I mean, could you imagine how difficult it would be to be a family of a president or a governor? Can I tell you it's pretty difficult sometimes to be a family of a pastor? Let alone being a family of someone who's governing millions of people? Pray for them. Pray for their decision-making. Pray that their will would be bent to the will of God. This is just so vital for us, especially as we come toward election season, that instead of firing off ugly emails about candidate so-and-so, we pray for candidate so-and-so. We trust that God might actually use him or her for his ultimate purposes in the world, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Instead of complaining about people outside, we are different in that we pray for people outside. And we pray to a God who we know listens. We pray to a God who hears. We pray to a God who responds. We pray to a God who will accomplish his ultimate and sovereign purposes. So we're going to do this right now. We're going to close out this morning's message by having a time of prayer in which you'll see three different guided moments of prayer. I'll invite Tim and the worship team to come forward and they'll play a little bit in the background as we pray. But we're going to take a moment based on Scripture to confess our own stuff, to look in the mirror and ask Jesus for a reset, to pray for our leaders, and perhaps most importantly today, to pray for our nation. As you prepare your heart, perhaps you would remind yourself for this moment to be still and know that God is God. To know that He is God and we are not. That He remains on His throne and we can trust Him. To center yourself and to invite His presence. Perhaps you'd pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, would you show me how you want to reset my life? Would you show me where I'm missing the mark? Lord Jesus, I sincerely desire more of you, more of your reign in my life. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise of your word. That our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We can look to the cross. We can look to the gospel. Receive healing and operate from that. Now, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for our nation's leaders. We want to thank you for our state's leaders. We ask that you would show them your love, that you would grant them your wisdom. Please help, Lord. Father, we do pray for those in positions of authority, as the Scriptures say, that we could live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. It's amazing that Paul prayed that in the Roman Empire. <laughs> Help us to have faith to pray to you, sovereign God. And Father, now we we pray for our nation. Lord Jesus, we ask for peace to reign in America. We pray that you would protect those who are vulnerable today. We ask together with one voice that you would protect our police officers and help those placed in harm's way. Help us to treat one another with the most basic form of dignity deep respect for those who are seeking to protect us. Father, what can we say but that we need you? We need you personally. We are far from put together. We need you. Our families need you. We need peace to reign in our families. Our communities need you. We pray for peace to reign here in Kearney, across Nebraska, across our nation. Pray your protection on the wonderful officers here in Kearney. Thank you for them. Pray your protection on officers across our nation. Please protect them. Pray for families who genuinely do feel vulnerable, who feel marginalized for whatever reason. For those who feel like they aren't safe, 
We ask for their protection as well. We don't want to pick sides, God. That's, that's not what we're about. We, we ask for basic human dignity to be affirmed for all. We pray that we would be different than the cultural milieu that way. That we would love those who are hurting. We pray for those who might mistreat us. And so we do. We ask for Governor Ricketts, God, that you would grant him wisdom to, to lead wisely. We pray for President Obama that you would lead him to lead wisely. Please protect them, Lord. Bend their will to your will, Lord God. Protect this nation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you receive our prayers. We thank you that you love us enough that you'll turn your ear to us. Grant us a reset. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people say.